If you've got a Bible, as I love saying, if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We've been, uh, as uh, you know, if you've been around at all, we've been looking at this letter to the Romans. Um, a letter that really just outlines the, how brilliant uh, salvation is, really, and um, how it does actually make sense in the very real world that we live in and the very real emotions that we deal with. And Paul, and it's kind of like, I think there's something about the brilliance of how the Bible works in this, that if we choose to, if we choose to listen to it, and we pray that the Spirit of God might bring it alive in our hearts again, then actually we find that one letter written 2,000 years ago feels as fresh as if it were written yesterday. And that it almost could have been written to us. But to be honest, you've got to do some work with that because it's not always easy. There's some parts of the New Testament that are kind of like really easy. Uh, some people really like the book of James, don't they? Because it's really practical. It's, yeah, we can get that bit. Keep, keep mouth shut, essentially. And, uh, and some of us know we need that a lot. And uh, the book of James, but then you get to Romans and it's kind of like, at times it's quite dense. And, but it's worthy of a life of study. But even in Romans, you get to bits of it, and you think, mm, I'm not sure how this is relevant for me. And the chapters 9, 10, and 11 are three chapters of Romans where lots of people have actually said, I think we could have managed without these three. It's kind of like if chapter 8 had finished at that brilliant high point, who's going to separate us from the love of God? Can famine, can hardship? No, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God because of what Jesus has done for us. We could have gone to chapter 12. Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And it would have been like, oh, there's nothing lost. But you get to a bit now in chapter 9 where he starts to ask, and the big question is this, what about the Jews? What about the Jews? Now, the real challenge is, you see, I stand, I'm, I've spent a lot of this week imagining you, all right? It's a nightmare, all right? I imagine you. And, I'm, and I can see you in, when I'm in my little office, and I, I can see you sitting in front of me, and me standing there saying, so what about the Jews? And you going, what about the Jews? This is not, I've got, I've, I'm up to here, Neil, all right? I've got kids, I've got work, I've got home, I've got relationships, I've got stuff going on. Right now, Jews are not at the top of my list of priorities, all right? I've got other stuff that's on my mind. And this is not a lecture that is just designed to educate you. It's not designed just to make you feel, oh, that's interesting. It's supposed to be an engagement with this that goes, okay, God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to say to me? And so that's the task I have today. Chapter 8 does finish in that brilliant way, doesn't it? If you've got it, you can see it. Um, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
No, that's all right. <laughs> Nothing's going to separate you. And in a sense, the question is, well, yeah, but what about the Jews? Because didn't God say that about them as well? And yet, they seem to be living in such a way that they just don't recognize Jesus. So, so has God given up on them? When Paul begins uh, the epistle to Romans, he starts it uh, in the earliest chapter like this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul's intention always was that the gospel would go to the Jews, God's chosen people, these people of the Old Testament. And Paul saw himself as an apostle to the Jews. But... They were disobedient. In fact, there was times when Paul almost sort of gave up and said, oh, these people are just not responding. And so what Paul's doing in Romans is saying, well, there's massive unfinished business. The Jews cannot be written off. God hasn't finished. And it is all about God. The whole book of Romans really is about what God's done, what God's doing. Not really, really about what we do. It's about what God's done. And God hasn't finished. The story is not yet over. God is still at work. Some people, when they think about the Jews, they think, well, that's kind of like plan A, and God's given up on plan A, and he's just gone to plan B. And uh, for those of us who live relatively close, these are, this is not Jews over there in Israel, now, we're talking about people who live in Ayer Broughton or Cheatham Hill. It's the people who are really close to us. It's the people you might work with. It's the people who have that Jewish background but, but might not have faith and actually might not have very much to do with Jesus. Those of you are canny amongst you. Do, you, do you follow Martin's Money Saver? Some of you know that. Some of you spend a lot of your life on it. Um, <laughs> I'm not pointing anybody out. Um, It's a website that, 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 that tries to save you money. His dad, I met his dad. His dad was a head teacher of a Jewish school in Frodsham, in the Delamere Forest area. And one of the things I used to do when I was a teacher at the Bible College was I taught an introductory set of lectures on introduction to Judaism. And, and to Islam. Um, and as it happened, to Hinduism and Buddhism, which on the day, I would always ask, anybody got any background in this? And when I was teaching the Hinduism and Buddhism uh, class, one guy said, yes, I was born into a very high caste Hindu uh, family, and then I became a Buddhist and then converted to Christianity. <laughs> uh, do you understand how, how frightening that was? <laughs> I was kind of like, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he said, I just want an easy course. But... <laughs> I kept looking over my shoulder all the time. Am I right? Um, and uh, anyway, when, when I was doing the, the Judaism one, I used to, to take the students and try and take them either to a synagogue or at least to meet uh, a Jewish leader. And I, I, I took him to meet um, this guy who was the head teacher and um, a senior leader in the Jewish community. And my students were all first-year students. And they were all dead keen. And... Um, they, they wanted to talk, you know, I used to have to tell the students, before you go, you're not there to proselytize. You're not there to evangelize. 
All right, because I knew I, it was like a nightmare. Oh, no. They're going to they're gonna bring the tambourines. You know, it's sort of like you're not here to evangelize. You're here to learn. You're here to ask, what does it feel like to be Jewish? You're here to learn how it works and all that sort of stuff. And then you Anyway, but we'd have, we'd have a time of questions for students to ask whoever it was. And uh, one of them said, what do you think about Jesus being the Messiah? And this guy's response was, well, he wasn't very good, was he? Uh, what do you mean? Well, they killed him. And he didn't bring liberation for everybody, did he? And we're still struggling, and we still, we're still hoping for somebody who, to be honest, will be better than the Jesus you talked about. And that's the big deal. One of the big deals for Jews. is like this crucified Jesus who rose again. They look at us and go, it's not that great, is it? And we go, yeah, but that's the only hope of the world. And, and Jews, without being you know, irreverent or anything, would go, well, if that's the hope of the world, and we go, it's the only hope of the world. And one of the reasons that Jews find it so difficult, there's one of the reasons is because actually they look at Jesus and go, well, he wasn't very good. And the other reason, some Jews find it very difficult to accept what we're trying to say is because there's a rich history of us persecuting them. There's a rich history of us saying you were the Christ killer. There's a rich history of putting people into ghettos. There's a rich history of putting them in camps. And we want to say that wasn't us. But for some people, it feels like it was us because well, you're Christian. That's what you do to us. So we'll keep ourselves to ourselves. We'll live in areas that are together. We don't trust you. And Paul writes to the Romans and, in a sense, writes to the Gentiles in Rome, the people who weren't uh, Jews in that little church. You remember I said there would be Jews and there would be Gentiles together. And, and he's writing to both of them and saying, well, what's God going to do? What's God's big plan about the Jewish people? Has he just given up on them? Is it now just plan B, just Christians? Or does God still want to do something? What I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to be looking at these passages in over two weeks. This, this today, <laughs> that's not very profound, is it, today? <laughs> Just in case you're really not sure. And, uh, and next week. <clears throat> and next week I'm going to do uh, just about, well, what's going to happen to them eventually? You know, because some Christians, uh, some Christians either go two ways. They either say, God's got nothing to do with the Jews anymore. Or they almost act as if they would want to be Jewish themselves. And actually, I think there's a middle way. And I think Paul has got the middle way, and I want to talk about that next week. But this week, what's God up to? Can God be trusted? Can have God's plans failed? That's really the big question. And what Paul is wanting to say is God's plans haven't changed, although sometimes the plans that God have don't seem to be the ones we would like. I found this. this is, the top line is our plan. All right. And then the bottom one is God's plan which actually feels a little closer to life, doesn't it? Sort of, the top is, I have plans for you, my plans are to prosper you and to do well for you. Yes, let's just sail on to the sunset. But actually, no, there's boulders, there's bridges, there's seas to cross, there are storms to engage with. 
So how does Paul begin all of this? Well, he signs, starts by this. In chapter 9, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah whose God, who is God over all forever praised. Paul begins by saying, I wish, and that's a really strong phrase, I wish I were cursed and cut off from God if that were the way that these people would accept Jesus. Some of the Jews had really given Paul a hard time. They'd been the guys that had really, they'd, they'd, they'd stoned him. They'd, they'd, they'd got the Roman authority to come in. They were not friendly to him. And Paul said, but they're my people. They're my people, and I, I wish, I would wish that God would be able to do something with them because they've had so much, they've received so much, and yet, and yet, they haven't. I'm really challenged by it because I think it's more than just sort of rhetoric. I think Paul really feels this, and i tell you why I'm challenged by it, because it's the challenge of... How do I feel about my people, whoever my people are? Who are your people? I'm not asking you to tell me out loud, but who are your people? Who are the people you go, God, I'm not going to give up praying for them. You see, I think sometimes what happens to us is some of us sort of think that Christianity is, is kind of nice for us, but either, I could never imagine them getting themselves bound the knee to Jesus. Or, or it just seems like they don't need it. So I'll pray about me and mine. And, and occasionally I'll pray about my family. Or occasionally I'll pray about my work people. Or occasionally I'll pray for our nation. But actually, most of the time, it's just me and God. God bless me. God bless my family. God bless mine. And Paul carries in his heart... Actually, I've got this deep ache for my people. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, who are my people? You know, it's like daring language, isn't it? It's like, who would you say to God? God, if this is what it would take, then cut me off that they might get in. See, it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. God made him who had no sin to be sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. And Paul's saying, I want to live that sort of life where I lay down my life for my people. For my people. It's not hard on a day like this 
when, when we get home and you watch the news later, there'll be all those pictures of cenotaphs and there'll be pictures probably of the poppies all around the Tower of London. And the, the thousands and thousands of people who are going to watch and see that. And you'll hear the bugle being played and someone will recite the poem that you know really well. And we will remember, again, those who sacrificed lives. And Paul says, I'd sacrifice my life for my people. I would. And it's that power of it that I wonder, I wonder who, who your people are. Because the thing that drove Paul was that Jesus and the good news of Jesus was the only thing that was actually going to make any difference. And so all the time he was sort of like, and it was this passion for his people that drove him. Verse 6 then begins. It's not as though God's word has failed. God hasn't given up. God hasn't failed. And God won't fail. That's the big thing. Between verse 6 and verse 29, if you look at it in most Bibles, what you have is actually a story of the Old Testament. And this is how the story goes. Uh, and I'm not going to read it all, but it's, it's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Here we go. Paul again. What? Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And he starts by st telling the story of situations in the Old Testament where in the Old Testament it seems to be that God has always wrestled with his people. In fact, the word Israel was the, the name that was given to Jacob, one of the early patriarchs, Jacob had this strange event that happened in the middle of the night when he was on the, on the run from Esau. And he, he, he wrestled with an angel. And he wrestled all night. And in the end, the angel dislocated his hip. And, and Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. And, and at the same time, and it's like because Jacob, this great deceiver, has been overpowered by God, as it were, but the other thing is that Jacob gets a new name. It's Israel. And, and in a sense, the way that the name came and the way it began was the way it always was, that God wrestles with his people. Because his people think they want to, we can do this. And God's always wrestling with his people. Now, and, and all the way through, he says, but, you know, God's always had a remnant. He's always seemed to choose some people and not others. So with Abraham, Abraham had a child with Hagar. When he thought the promise wasn't going to happen, he, he, he sleeps with his servant girl, and they have a child called Ishmael. And then about 12 years later, Sarah remarkably, inexplicably, unnaturally gets pregnant, and they have a child called Isaac. And Isaac is the child of promise. And Hagar and Ishmael love, but not the child of promise. And you say, is that fair? Is that fair? Jacob and Esau, twins. And uh, Jacob's loved, and Esau 
he's going to Is that fair? Now, it's interesting because the, these stories, as you go through, these, these, these would not have been a concern for Jewish people. They go, yeah, that's our history. Our history is always that God chooses certain people from amongst his people to actually be the remnant, to be, be the means of blessing, to be the people who, who God's going to use. It's not a problem. The Gentiles would have gone, that doesn't seem fair. Just like if you read it, you would go, it doesn't seem fair. And you see, the thing about the Jews were they just believed that God was God. <laughs> in fact, Paul will say um, in verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for disposal of refuge? refuse? It's like the, the, the Jews just believed that God was God. And here's the point. When you and I read the story of the Christian church, in the early 18th century, 1705, 6, around that sort of time, the Church of England was rich, it was fat, it was um, corrupt, it was powerful, it was far from godly. And there was a woman in Leicestershire, in Epworth, and uh, she had a load of kids. She had, uh, had about 11 or 12 of them. And the 12th was a little runty kid, um, really sickly. Um, but they cared for him, and he grew up. And uh, his name was John. And his mum and dad, they were called Wesley. And John Wesley came, and, and he started to preach in the fields, because they wouldn't allow him in the church, because he liked to preach to the common people. And uh, they'd say, you're not welcome in our church. And so he'd preach in the fields, and he'd, he'd come all over, and, and sometimes he'd get stoned, and sometimes he'd get waylaid. But he came to Manchester, he came to Salford, he's been all over, just always on a horse. In fact, <laughs> he used to read a lot, but he was always on a horse. So he kept falling off his horse. Um, it's true. Um, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, anybody, anybody think that, that God's not fair? Because when the Church of England becomes so corrupt that God says, I'll choose John. Do you think that's not fair? Of course it's fair, because how are these people going to get back to God? See, the, the way God works, even with his own people, is always to say, I need a remnant of people who are for me. Because it's easy for the people of God to get fat and lazy and far from him. It's, putting it really bluntly, it's easier to turn up to church. And it's easier to think you're the good guys. But actually, what God needs is the remnant who go, I'm for you. I'm for you. So when Paul starts the 10th chapter, he starts it like this. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Remember, Paul's a Jew. He's the remnant. My prayer is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, 
but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they didn't know the righteousness of God and they sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And what Paul's saying there is, my heart's desire and my prayer is that they will be saved because they've rejected the Messiah and they've relied on their own righteousness. They're good people, Paul says. But in their goodness, they've rejected the Savior. How will they come to faith? If you go down, he explains, verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. Whoever does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that's by faith says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that's it. that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do Jewish, Jewish people come to know the freedom from sin. They get to know the freedom from sin in the same way as we did. And it's Jesus. And uh, in the same way as we've been saying while we've been dealing with Romans, it's not enough for us to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really turn over a new leaf, I'm gonna be better. It's not enough for us to say, I'm really going to try harder to be good. It's not enough to say, to promise to the people that we love, I'm really going to promise, I am going to change. It's not enough because actually sin takes all those good intentions and twists them and we fail. And then we feel rubbish. And then we feel guilty. And then we feel trapped. How can I get out of this? Paul keeps saying, the only solution to all those desires, the desire to be different, is Jesus. And it's not 2,000 years ago in church. It's today. Don't you have those days where you just long to be different? I just want to be different. I just don't want to keep on having this same battle. And Paul says, actually, the only, the only rope that you can cling to that's thrown to you is Jesus. So, what do you do? Well, it's remarkably simple, isn't it? He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that's the first thing. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. 
Am I the only person in the room thinking, that sounds remarkably simple? <laughs> Come on, you've not mentioned quiet times. Oh, <laughs> you've not mentioned going to church, you've not mentioned tithing, you've not mentioned anything. It's just like, wait, hang on a minute, is it that simple? Well, of course, it's not that simple if it's like, uh, Jesus is Lord, yeah, sure he is. It's not like, oh yeah, come, you're in. But when you say, and hear me, when you said in Rome, Jesus is Lord, out loud, you said it to people who were really used to hearing, Caesar is Lord. And once you start to say things out loud, people recognize, oh, flip, they're different. They don't fit. That's why saying Jesus out loud is not a magical formula. Say after me, Jesus is Lord, right, you're in. It's actually the declaration I belong somewhere else. I belong to a different kingdom. I'm no longer an agent of this world. I'm an agent of that world. I don't belong here. I belong there. I'm not for them. I'm for him. That's why it's such a big deal. Without looking up or being intending to make anybody feel guilty. (laughs) Sometimes you need to hear yourself saying out loud, Jesus is Lord. Um, Over the last uh, 24 hours, I spent a lot of time with um, a bunch of Anglicans in London. I went on Friday and came back last night. And uh, so we did some worship together. And it just struck me. uh, There's much about their worship that I really appreciate. But it struck me that every time they begin to worship, they say, let's just have some silence. There's a lot of silence, actually, that goes on. (laughs) Now, I'm no raving Pentecostal charismatic, as you know. But to be honest, it makes me feel like I should be one when I'm in those sort of settings. Because I kind of want to say, if it's all about silence, nobody ever hears you say anything. If you never speak it out, who will hear? And then with your heart, you believe. What do you believe? You believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. That the world turned on the resurrection. And with your heart, you believe and you're justified, you're set right with God. With your mouth, you profess your faith and you are saved. That's for us and for them. And finally, so what about those people that you love? What about your people? Verse 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Those people you love. Your husband, your kids, your wider family. Who's going to tell them? I don't mean who's going to nag them to come to church. You might be doing that already. Who's going to tell them? 
How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? But if they're sent, how beautiful are your feet? Paul wrote to a people who were disobedient and obstinate. And that's how the chapter ends. All day long, God says, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And Paul says, those are my people. I'll never give up. I'll never give up. I'm really challenged by it. I don't know where you're up to. Some of you might actually need to say out loud somewhere, Jesus is Lord. It's not all private. It's public. Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. He is. My life's changed. And some of you need to be stirred up again to go back to your people Because who will tell them if you don't? Mm. 